as children. We need stories. We need adults to tell the stories that tell us to not be afraid of the dark or to dream of the future that has not come. Stories to cause our mind to drift to a place to be safe and calm, a home in our mind. Sometimes we fear what may be in the shadows as children. Adults and the light keep the unseen monsters away. All children fear monsters in the dark. As a young boy, Theodore Roosevelt saw a werewolf at night that scared him into intense terrors when he would go to bed. His only solace came from his father and mother's words, to get out there and see the world, not to stop, to be someone, something greater in every way. And life isn't about fearing in a corner. The human spirit must triumph always or else remain in the dark. When historians talk about Theodore Roosevelt, America's 26th president, oftentimes they bring up his loud, gregarious persona, his way with words and his honesty when asked any sort of simple questions. He was an American first, conservationist second, and a family man to his very core. But it was his American identity that would shape, destroy, rebuild and again destroy him in the six decades he spent on Earth. Progressive to a fault at the time, it is in his policies and forthrightness that we see a man of defined principles and drive. In his words, quote, I believe in a man taking the next step, not pondering the 200th one, unquote. He wanted unity, action, glory, the spotlight, the fame. He wanted the America he believed in. I've always believed that possibly the monster in the closet we see in the dark is actually the manifestation of ourselves we worry to see. When applying this idea to Roosevelt, did he himself become the werewolf that kept him up at night? Or did he find ways to use his parents' worth to calm the beast? In the end, 19th and 20th century historians would debate, marvel, and denounce his words and actions in so many ways. And I believe he was authentic, as American as a cheeseburger. <laughs> Rewarding to learn about. Authentic in his humanity, Gregarious again, yes, but also a born leader who heard the people first as America was his true love, his home. History, there are other like him, but no one, no one the same. Which is why we choose in this series to discuss the insane life and accomplishments, glories of a Mr. Theodore Roosevelt, Jr. Zanzizi Zambibi. 
Welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast. Zanzizi Zambibi. Welcome to the Zanzizi Podcast with Red Dead 2023, gathered with episode subject Teddy Roosevelt right behind me. If you're watching on the YouTubes, check it out. <coughs> he's got a nice mustache. He's going to chop off my shoulder with it. But I'm also gathered on the interwebs with Danger Zone coming back for episode... Uh, I don't even know what number this is going to be, but the first part of our Theodore Roosevelt series, the 26th president of America, ladies and gentlemen. You got anything to say about that, Adam? Yeah, I'm excited. I'm uh, I'm ready to talk about this guy. This guy was uh, should we call him like Teddy Gump or uh, Forrest Roosevelt? Because I feel like his life was Forrest Gump. I mean, or did they get inspiration from Teddy Roosevelt when they wrote Forrest Gump? Is there a connection there? Because basically from the beginning of his life until the end. I mean, it's like spot on with like all the shit that he did. (laughs) I I could see somebody, I could see somebody thinking that I, uh, so there's a, there's, there's a whole preamble to this episode that you've already heard at this point that I wrote. And I try to do that for whenever we cover a big historical figure, because, um, uh, full disclosure, and we'll announce our sources here up top. Jeff Shara's book, The Old Lion, was pretty pivotal. I read through the entirety for this series. And also, which I'll add in the description, there's a great three and a half, four hour PBS doc that I found on YouTube that really breaks down his back story and his up until his his demise at 60 years old um i'm excited because this covers a swath in time that i'm always intrigued by the turn of the 20th century and it also really comes from the era of post-civil war and the civil war i mean that's a future episode but also um, that time is so in- interesting to me, uh, following the rebuilding and the kind of uh, war-fatigued America, especially if you go back even to our previous episode, the two-parter that we did on the Revolutionary War. I think Teddy is, I guess you could say Forrest Gump, but... In, in a lot of ways, he is a big reason why we have the country we have today. And he's infinitely fascinating. He did so much. He was 42 when he becomes president. He's the... I mean, 42, what have you done with your life at this point? It's like, Jesus, um, you know, we're both 40 now, but it's crazy to think of the amount of accomplish- 
accomplishments this man made in his life he you know he's he's infinitely fascinating he is one of these guys who was elected into presidency as vice president previous which we don't have many of those there's he was governor of new york he's a new york boy so right there you should be excited adam Oh, I'm I'm stoked. No, New York politics was huge in the late 1800s. Yeah, um, go, yeah, I, yeah. We can go down that road, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of New York politics is very influential in the late 1800s. You hear a lot about it. If you look at if you read a lot of history about that time, you hear a lot about New York City politics and Tammany Hall, mm-hmm. which uh, basically that was kind of like where policy was set. Like now we have think tanks and stuff like that, and. uh yeah, New York politics was big back then. Now, was this guy always on your radar? <clears throat> I don't I don't think so. I mean, obviously I read a lot about him when I was in college studying uh you know, political history and US history and whatnot. Um so I obviously uh heard a lot about him and, and, and read quite a bit, but I didn't really delve deep into his life the way I did to prepare for tonight. Yeah. Um, just super interesting. I mean, I guess what I knew most about Teddy prior to tonight uh, or prior to this week was like, uh, I read a lot about the progressive era when I was in college. And uh, Teddy Roosevelt was obviously uh, one of the most influential politicians of the progressive era. So um, I know a lot about that, uh, or I knew a lot about that prior to today. But um, yeah, going into his life and going to all his, his adventures. You know, all over the, this guy traveled the world and traveled the country. And like, he's always looking for danger and looking for shit to do. And so, yeah, it was really interesting to uh, really get down deep into some of the stuff that he did. Totally. Uh, He's born in 1858 in New York City. He is a junior. So his dad was Teddy Sr. He, as a Roosevelt, he does come from wealth, and I I remember knowing that previous to doing the research on this, because obviously Roosevelt's a very prominent name in America. It To me, I was a little put off initially by delving into him, but now that I have, I'll be honest with you, top three presidents, he's in there. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh his favorite president was Abraham Lincoln. His least favorite president was Jefferson Davis, which uh, happens right after <laughs> Lincoln. So it makes sense to me. Uh, his well, da- can we really consider Jefferson Davis a president? I mean, Lincoln. I, I no, I, I get you. I get no I, Jefferson Davis. Yeah. I mean, he was president president of the Confederacy. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, you're right. You're right. You're right. My bad. Yes, no, I agree. Benedict Arnold, 2.0, if you will. Um, so, we'll, we're going to walk through his life a little bit here. Um, he's born, like I said, he's he's just a little dude. He's born in uh, October 27th, 1858. And he, he was not... He's born at 28th 
28 East 20th Street in Manhattan. So like New York City proper. His, uh, although unfortunately from the get-go, he's got a lot of ailments. He's a sickly boy. He's got asthma. He's dyslexic, ADHD. I'm sure they were like, I don't know what's wrong with Teddy. You know, like he's, he's a sickly boy, but his dad loves him. Like, love, love, loves him. And his mom is this gorgeous woman, this southern belle. And uh, he absolutely adores his mother. Her name is Martha Bullock, or Martha Stewart Bullock. Um, He was the second of four children born to uh, his dad and mother. And... uh, she was a businesswoman and he was a philanthropist very popular too and i there was this really interesting documentary that talked about how very early on teddy had these memories as a kid especially when he would you know be an audience of say some like higher class people in the neighborhood and they would be in the house and he would invite people in from off the street basically making them confront the people that were downtrodden in society and saying like we need to give to these people who are struggling right now in this economy in this world that we're living in currently in this post-civil war world or at the time because i said 50 1858 we're like right in that era you know so he's like a little guy and um, one of the things that he was actually embarrassed about with uh, Teddy Sr., uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. was embarrassed that his dad didn't serve, um, which kind of sh- comes back later when we get more into him as an adult. He, again, like I said, was a very sickly boy, and with his asthma... His dad would hear him wheezing in the night, and the only thing he could think to do was take him on a car ride or a a carriage ride in the city. Granted, he had that luxury, but still, I mean, it's, it's his kid, you know, like he obviously loves his kid and he's struggling. So he's, he's trying, he had these very distinct memories of his dad as a young boy, just being lifted up into his arms and carried and his, uh, just, you know, saying, Teddy, breathe, breathe. You know, TR was his other nickname. Telling him, you know, to breathe. And uh, I don't know. I guess knowing that he had suffered so much as a little child kind of endeared me more to his struggle. Especially knowing, like, asthma was a really big... And it didn't just go away. Like, he... We're dealing with a different time here, folks. I mean, we'll get to it when we get to the Spanish-American War, but there's not much for safety and regulations. <laughs> um, no, I mean, he, he had severe asthma, right? So Yeah, debilitating I, asthma. I don't think they had inhalers and shit back then, right? So No, no. Yeah, so, I mean, it was like a lot of kids would bad asthma just died because they couldn't breathe and you know Teddy had to suffer through I can't imagine being able to not breathe like 
you know, feel like you're being choked of air I've you ripped, know, on a daily basis. I've ripped a couple bongs and felt like I couldn't breathe for a few minutes. <laughs> but like, yes, you're right. He he's his life started out and he was n- not in a good place physically. But his dad did enforce in him like he saw his dad as like a god. I mean, he was law. And I could see that in in a household, especially with so many um, siblings, too. I mean, it, it's it's a tricky time. Obviously, like you said, and you kind of, we alluded to it when we did the Revolutionary War, there wasn't much for, you know, uh, medical advancements at the time, you know. Your leg gets shot, chop off, chop it off at the knee or whatever, wherever the wound is, that, that's got to go. But um, he did basically start to get better as he got older. There's this really great sidebar where he's a little boy, and his mom, Martha, um, they... Um, wait, did I say Martha? I hope I didn't say Martha. His dad... I just saw it. Yeah, it's Martha. I just, I don't want to, I I, th- I thought maybe it was my Batman knowledge slipping in there, and all of a sudden I was like, Martha, that's my, that's my mom. My bad. His mom's name was Martha, and anyway, so, Mammy, I think is what he called her, they went to the, to the market a lot, and he used to like to go there because, um, for one thing, her being like a Southern Belle, she didn't want to touch the poultry or like whatever at the markets. So he would go and like take the money and go get like a, say a chicken or whatever. And, um, one of those times he went is when he saw, uh, one of the butchers brought out a, uh, a seal carcass and he was just like blown away. Like, Holy shit, what the hell is this thing? You know? And, um, I've always said this, and it's a Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain quote, but it's one that I live by. Travel is the death of prejudice. And I find that in life, especially in those moments like that, and you you expand your worldview a little bit, you're like, where the hell did this creature come from, you know? And um, it's actually from that point that he starts to become like a voracious reader, like even though he had, um, you know... he had the, his ailments and everything like he kind of delved into books and and uh and he, he's a huge like huge lover of animals even though he was like a huge hunter he was a conservationist and you know the thing of it we we've talked about i, I don't know if we me and you have talked about on the podcast but there is a huge difference between like say you're like trophy hunter or um, what is it like you're um notoriety or like sensationalized hunters versus like your real hunters like you can still be a conservationist and be a hunter is basically what I'm saying yeah for sure yeah he um going back to you know spending a lot of time outside and uh you know he started collecting animals and he got into taxidermy when he was really young Mm-hmm. And so he always had a fascination with animals. And I guess that probably played into his, you know, he hunted a lot of big, big game. You know, he went on an African safari. And, you know, when he first went out to the Badlands, he went out there to hunt bison. You know, obviously, um, we'll 
probably touch on it, but the story of the teddy bear. Oh yeah. You know, so yeah, I mean, he really, do you want the animal? Do you want to tell that? Do you want to tell that story since you brought it up real quick? Yeah. So I, I don't know. It's it's a great, it's a great little, little thing. Yeah. So he, he went on a a bear trip, uh, a bear hunting trip. And, uh, I guess they couldn't find. I I can't recall where it was. I forget, but they. I feel like it was Montana they, or something like that. Like he he frequented the Dakotas and uh, specifically the little little Missouri area of the river area, kind of like county areas. He befriended right. a lot of a lot of basically Wild West folk when cowboys and and outlaws and Indians and all that were were a thing. But yeah, keep going. Yeah. So, oh yeah. So anyway, he's on this bear hunt and, uh, I, I guess they couldn't find any, you know, so they, they, um, ended up, I guess, tying one to a tree <laughs> and basically told Teddy Roosevelt, there's your bear, you know, this is like, there's your hunt, you know, to shoot the bear that's tied up. So, you know, just who wants to do that? And so <clears throat> Teddy remarked something like that's not hunting. That's just murder or something like that. He's like, my God, so, man, let that poor creature go. Is is somewhere? Along yeah, there. right. Yeah, and 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 they did. So apparently, a toy maker in uh, New York City contacted him and asked him if he could um, create a stuffed bear and name it a teddy bear. Yeah, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt was just like, yeah, if you want, go for it. <laughs> he yeah. didn't really care, so. They like started making these stuffed bears that became teddy bears, and uh, it became a you know obviously a children's toy of the time and up until now, and still called a teddy bear. Um, That's because Teddy didn't want to shoot the bear hooked up, roped up to the tree. I guess so. Funny story about that. I think that says a lot about his personality too, though. Like the 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 idea that like when he grew up and you know was out hunting, he he was more about the principle like more had more of a we'll say like a a native american style approach or like a classic hunter's approach to hunting you know you 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 take the time you have the patience to to find you know your game it's not a matter of like yeah, who, nobody wants to kill a harmless creature that's just like tied to a tree, you know. Anyways, yeah. I mean, I can speaking it from a hunter's perspective. I mean, I I started hunting when I was a got I don't know twelve years old. I think I got my first hunting license. But uh, you know, I grew up. You know, my dad's a big outdoorsman, so I was always fishing and hunting and stuff with him. And into my adult years, but I. I've never really taken pleasure in, in shooting an animal, even though it's, you know, it's food for the, you know, family or whatever. Um, the, the people that, you know, just hunt to get these, I guess I get torn on when they start hunting like extravagant, you know, majestic animals, you know, that stuff really kind of bugs me, you know, when they go out and they shoot, you know, lions or tigers or whatever, maybe not tigers, but, um, elephants you know obviously and there's it's just i don't like it but it's each his own i guess i mean we're 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 
kind of hinting towards more of his things later on, but he prioritized conservation, established national parks, forests, and monuments later on to preserve the national nation's natural resources. So, like he he had an affinity for animals. Like you said, the ta- I think the taxidermy and like I said, when he saw that seal as a young boy, I think it had an effect, a long term effect that was good. I think his mother was a really proper southern debutante beautiful woman who you know was all white in gowns and just you know gentlemanly kind of deme- like that old timey we'll say like just proper lady and he always 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 listen to the women in his family like i said he's one of four kids his mom was a huge influence his dad was a huge influence he loved them both both dearly and again this will roll into the idea of that nature versus nurture and um the psychopaths but like he had such a good quality like loving home and I think it led to the great man that he became. And some people triumph over their adver- adversarial kind of conditions and things like that. And I understand that that there are still great people that function out in the world that come from great sadnesses. And don't worry, we'll get to it. This this man definitely had some serious sadness points, but. Um, Continuing on as a young boy, he uh, his paternal grandfather was of Dutch descent. Uh, so he had, in his siblings, he had an older sister named Anna, a younger brother, Elliot, and a younger sister, Corinne. Elliot was later the father of Anna Eleanor Roosevelt, who married Theodore's distant cousin, Franklin Delanor Roosevelt. Future episode. His birth... Paternal grandfather, as I said, with Dutch descent, his other ancestry included primarily Scottish and Scots-Irish-English, and smaller amounts of German, Welsh, and French. Theodore Sr. was the fifth son of businessman Cornelius Van Schack Roosevelt and Margaret Barnhill, as well as a brother of Robert Roosevelt and James A. Roosevelt. Theodore's fourth cousin, James Roosevelt I, was was also a businessman, was the father of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Martha was the younger daughter of Major James Stevens Bullock and Martha P. Patsy Stewart, though the Van Shacks Roosevelt was a descendant of the Schuyler family. So I heard this a lot, especially from um, historians. They say that Teddy jr was specifically more of a bullock so more like martha's side in his his uh demeanor i mean obviously he was a loud man but at the turn of the 20th century post you know spanish american war i can't imagine he's anything other than loud especially being a member of the fucking rough riders bro we'll get to that he um he grows up and he does get kind of the idea from his dad that boxing is like the ultimate sport and ends up actually being a fairly decent boxer. He, unfortunately, though, I don't think even with his strength as a leader and all that sort of thing, he excelled 
especially in boxing or really any other things other than say like politic or not politics um philanthropy like his father his insane ability to soak up so much knowledge from books his ability to read the room and listen to especially having his mother and sisters and and he just excelled when it came to being a leader if that makes any sense he he really 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 loved to be the one to speak and answer any question no matter what it is he inevitably and his dad knew this too was like you're gonna be a harvard man one day like you're 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 like you're like a chip off the old block son which is fucking again is is exactly the thing a son wants to hear especially from his dad but i mentioned that he had his his ailments so he actually got really into running and swimming and that was one of the ways that he like really built up his other i mean obviously other than the boxing he he um he had these nighttime asthma attacks that caused the experience of being smothered to death. That's what it feels like when these, when this would happen. And I mentioned it too, but, um, in the opening, but yes, he definitely had this constant fear of a werewolf in his closet or in the dark. Um, Roosevelt and two cousins formed what they called the Roosevelt museum of natural history because he, Literally, like, you know, you mentioned it. He was a taxidermist very early on. His lifelong interest in zoology began at seven. And uh, he filled his makeshift museum, as I said, with animals that he killed or caught. He then studied the animals and prepared them for exhibition. At age nine, he recorded his observation of insects in a paper entitled The Natural History of Insects. He, more than any president, wrote, like just a ton of writing and yeah he, he wrote like two books or three books before he was 16 yeah he wrote that one <clears throat> the natural history of insects and then he wrote one on uh birds mm-hmm. i believe when he was like 16 or so and then of course he he, he wrote those uh 18 12 books while he was at harvard but anyway go on yeah he, he wrote a lot and read a lot We'll be doing a 1812 episode, don't you worry, listeners. So Roosevelt's father significantly influenced him, as I mentioned before. His father was a prominent leader in New York's cultural affairs. He helped to found the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, Teddy was a huge fan of art in all forms and had been especially active in mobilizing support for the Union during the American Civil War. And then he married a Southern Belle. Contract, conflict of interest. I can imagine them having dinner together. But, you know, it's that Romeo and Juliet factor, man. You're Montague, I'm a Capulet. Let's make it fucking, let's make the fucking ceiling sweat, bro. With our love. I mean, I get it. So... He did support the Union during the American Civil War, even though his in-laws included Confederate leaders. Roosevelt said, quote, My father, Theodore Roosevelt, was the best man I ever knew. 
He combines strength and courage with gentleness, tenderness, and great unselfishness. He would not tolerate in us children selfishness or cruelty, idleness, cowardice, or untruthfulness. Which I think is great. I think that's exactly what a kid needs to hear. I mean, I don't know about you when it comes to your parenting or how you and your dad, you know, how he t- how he taught you as a kid. But, I mean, my dad just spanked the shit out of me. So I guess that works, too, if you're, if you're from the, a child of the 80s. Uh, family trips abroad, including tours of Europe in 1869 and 1870, and Egypt in 1872. Like you said, this motherfucker traveled the world, which is great. Like, you want to see how other countries be living, you know? We got Those are some long-ass vacations, man. <laughs> if you're going to Egypt or you're going to Europe in 1870s, like your yeah. family vacations, like fucking twelve weeks long, at least. Because that's how long it takes us to get there. <laughs> totally. Uh, his <clears throat> the, and in Egypt in 1872, which this basically is what really shaped his kind of cosmopolitan exp- uh, perspective. Hiking with his family in the Alps in 1869, Roosevelt found that he could keep pace with his father. He had discovered the significant benefits of physical exertion to minimize his asthma and bolster his spirits. So high altitudes and natural nature-esque, like going into the nature is really a through line here as far as defeating his asthma. I mean, even though... um, and in in this 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 story, which is just fucking incredible, and I cannot believe it hasn't been made into a major motion picture. Uh, I know that Scorsese is planning to make one with DiCaprio as Teddy Roosevelt. I kind of don't know how good that's going to look, but we'll see. I trust Scorsese. Um, this the landscapes this guy goes to is basically everywhere because not only do we have these family trips but we have his trips out west his trips and then where he goes to school in boston and then to florida to cuba when he goes and fights in the spanish-american war the guy goes everywhere um a six-year-old roosevelt witnessed the funeral procession of abraham lincoln food for thought favorite president by the way that's a cool picture uh of him and his i think it's his uh, brother elliot in the window there mm-hmm. that one picture uh of the uh, funeral procession mm-hmm. i think it's on wikipedia i saw that i thought that was pretty neat that's gotta yeah follow our to, instagram to have that. we'll post it <laughs> to have your i mean back then i mean it's not like everybody had cameras you know and to have that picture taken uh, it's just pretty pretty wild from a historical perspective you know what i mean to have a, the funeral of abraham lincoln with a future president you know up in the window looking over you oh know, yeah looking down to the street well not, <clears throat> not only that but like i mean the the two two of the most important historical american historical figures of all time so 
Yeah, it's that's that's insane. Roosevelt was homeschooled most of his life by tutors and his parents. Biographer H.W. Brands, who argued that the, quote, most obvious drawback to his homeschooling was uneven coverage of the various areas of human knowledge. What do you think about homeschooling? Do you dig that or... I mean, things have changed so much with schooling. I mean, if you... I don't, I'm impartial with homeschooling. I mean, I, I went to public school my whole life. Um, I knew some kids in my town that, that were uh, homeschooled. And uh, I think the biggest thing for kids who are homeschooled is they, they don't have the entirety of the social aspect of being in school with, you know, your peers, with your friends, being able to, you know, go to class, go to recess, go to, you know, whatever study hall, you know, kids who are on school, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Each his own, like I said before, you know, I don't, it doesn't really, if you want to do homeschooling, good for you. You know, if not, good for you. I guess it's all about what information you <clears throat> as a student retain. And, uh, hopefully that situation works out and it ends up being like a really great thing for for the the person learning you know I, I guess if it's easier that way i mean technically the last two two and a half years we kind of had a homeschooling situation for most people uh but in in this situation he was solid in geography and bright in history biology french and german however he struggled in math dude i'm with you fucking hate math and the classical languages. When he entered Harvard College on September 27th, 1876, his father advised, quote, take care of your morals first, your health next, and finally your studies. His father's sudden death on February 9th, 1878, devastated Roosevelt, but he eventually recovered and doubled his activities. So that's a really important first kind of act beat in the the book i read he was studying and got a telegram as was the way to get like an urgent letter or urgent notice to somebody and he it's just insane because he like opens the telegram and it's like your dad's dead like jesus christ i cannot imagine how shitty it would feel to be the guy dropping that letter off or fucking you know I can't imagine getting, you know, anything other than, like, hopefully a phone call that says I got to get to the hospital or something, you know. But I can't imagine, you know, it's especially with the mortality rates of children previous to the 20th century, the the notices are probably the last thing you want to get at the time. His father was a... Um, Devout, uh, sorry, devout Presbyterian regularly led the family in prayers. While at Harvard, young Theodore emulated him by teaching Sunday school more, for more than three years at Christ Church in Cambridge. Now, I should mention that um, it's pretty well known that Teddy wasn't, I think he believed in God. He wasn't an atheist or, say, agnostic. He just found some of the pomp and circumstance of the religious, we'll say, hierarchy to be kind of gross 
to him, um, which to each their own. You make your own decisions when it comes to religion. But I remember distinctly a part in the one of the things I read said he thought that the Catholic priests were just preachers, but dressed super, super, I, I, you know, super posh or whatever you want to call it. Like, I get it. You know, why, why do you need to dress a certain way? I kind of appreciate somebody who maybe makes himself a little more humble, if that makes any sense. But, um, he did because of his dad, you know, inevitably end up helping with the church. So, uh, while in Harvard, he did well in science, philosophy, and rhetoric courses, but continued to struggle in Latin and Greek. He studied biology intently and was already an accomplished naturalist and published ornithologist. In fact, there's a quite a few times in the book where he'll see like a feather on the ground and be like, oh, a red-beaked, flat-footed uh, platypus bird ostrich. Cool. You know, like he he just spots shit randomly and he's like, oh, hmm, this is a fucking big birdopodis or whatever. And that's, I mean, that's cool to have a knowledge of that stuff. I, all my grandparents are like bird watchers. And, and in fact, the Aluma Mommy, a member of this Beer City Media Network, she is also a big bird watcher. And I, I get that. There's, there's fucking apps. You can tell what plants and birds are just from taking a picture of them. It's great. While at Harvard, Roosevelt participated in rowing and boxing. He was once runner-up in an intramural boxing tournament. Roosevelt was a member of the Alpha Delta Phi Literary Society, the Delta Kappa Epsilon Fraternity, and the prestigious Porcelain Club. He was also an editor for the Harvard Advocate. In 1880, Roosevelt graduated Phi Beta Kappa, 22nd of 177 from Harvard with an AB Magna Cum Laude, which is insane. Uh, Henry F. Pringle, biographer, states, Roosevelt, attempting to analyze his college career and weigh the benefits he had received, felt that he had obtained little from Harvard. He'd been depressed by the formula formalistic treatment of many subjects by the rigidity, the attention to minutiae that were important in themselves, but which somehow were never linked up with the whole. So I think initially he thought, well, I want to go out there and like make a difference in the world. You know, I want to do something with some fucking weight to it. And in this instance, he's like, that's it. You mean, so lawyers basically are just people who fucking get crooked rich people off? What? Politics is all based on economics? What? These are truths I'm learning? The fuck is wrong with this country? That's it. We need it all another tied back together. <laughs> oh man. Politics and money, they go hand in hand. <laughs> they really do, man. And I mean, there's two things I look for, especially when we're covering a subject. And with Teddy, um, I found those. And one of them is humanity, like humanity in a person that I can somewhat relate to. And then the second thing is 
um, old kind of repetitions or circles that sound like shit that we're dealing with now. And there's so much of that throughout this whole thing. Again, you kind of, I, I know you broke him down in an amusing way by, you know, giving him kind of the moniker of the Forrest Gump character who's just literally in the same place at the same time throughout this, like, Civil War until basically right after or during World War One. Um, yes and no. But there's a lot of yes in there. Um, he has a lot of humanity, though, and I and I see that specifically as he's he's looking at the people that he's dealing with at the time and being like, okay, I don't want to be a piece of shit, you know. It's kind of like when you make a decision and it's like the lesser of two evils, and you're like, it still sucks. But he's the type of guy who's like, well, if both decisions suck, I'm just not going to do them. I'm going to figure out another way. I mean, that's the kind of guy that's going to fucking take over San Juan Hill, brother, and bring the Rough Riders to justice. <laughs> How you doing out of there? You think- <laughs> Good, man. Good. Just- <laughs> fucking dog is barking upstairs. Oh. Me not. oh, man. Do you <laughs> want- that's the... No, 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 you're fine. I just, that's the thing about not having the headphones on, so I can hear everything in the house. Sorry, so. No, you're good. (laughs) Maybe it's Teddy Roosevelt's ghost. He's like, Booger! Huzzah! I want to play some PS5. I don't know what he would say. (laughs) Give me some fucking... I don't think... I got a little uh, Yorkie uh, that our friends uh, basically pawned off on us and we took her in. I don't think Teddy Roosevelt would come back as a Yorkie. Be a fucking grizzly bear down in the woods. <laughs> he would. He would. And he'd be like, I would be delighted to have some honey. Because bears like honey. That's all I know. Um, but I wanted to mention too, he graduated in 1880, magna cum laude from Harvard, and he wrote his thesis statement on the fact that he thought men and women needed equal rights. Huzzah, my friend. A man ahead of his time. And I'm not just saying that because I think uh, this show should become all politics. I just think that for somebody to be that progressive and that early and be so ahead... Um, it shows character, I think, at, at the time, you know, and I, I mean, I'll say it, he was a, re- a Republican later on, and that's fine, and any party's fine, but I'm just speaking the truths here. The man had a vision, and he listened, and he talked loud. So, as I said, his father died, sad, sad Teddy Jr., which is understandable. Nobody wants to think about the day that their father passes. And to anyone, yeah, he was young too. His father was only forty six. Forty six, yeah. Which is a big father was big, big, sh- big shocker. And I mean, the mom was devastated. I mean, that's, that's young, man. Yeah, that'd be like <laughs> I ain't. I don't know what the mortality rates around this time were, but I'm sure that that was still young then. Um, so after his dad died, Roosevelt inherited 65,000, which is equivalent to at the time in 2000, or I'm sorry, at the t- 
time of his death in the late 19th century there of 65,000 is equivalent to to 2022 would be 1,971,000 dollars enough wealth on which he could live comfortably for the rest of his life but Roosevelt gave up his earlier planning of studying natural science and decided to attend Columbia Law School instead, moving back into his family's home in New York City. Although Roosevelt was an able law student, he often found law to be irrational. As I mentioned, he did like verbatim say, like, these lawyers fucking piss me off. <laughs> these people are just cover... It's a bunch of cover-your-ass dickheads. Like, um... He wanted to understand law. So I'm, I think it's a good thing because in, 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 every, in every aspect of, of, of a person's life, you want to retain some sort of knowledge. And I think everybody knows when they're doing something that they're literally just going numb, brain dead to, a.k.a. playing video games all day. But, like, I think him going to law school really trained him and Harvard trained him to kind of understand the people that he was going to be dealing with, especially later on with politics. So, um, but also he needed to go home to take care of mom and the family, you know, after dad's passing. So, and his brother, Elliot, I, I mentioned earlier, his, his brother, Elliot was like a lifelong depressive alcoholic. So there was just no solving that shitty fucking quagmire um but during that time back home he wrote a book on the war of 1812 which you brought up future episode determined to enter politics roosevelt began attending meetings at morton hall the 59th street headquarters of um new york's 21st district republican association Though Roosevelt's father had been a prominent member of the Republican Party, the younger Roosevelt made an unorthodox career choice for someone of his class, as most of Roosevelt's peers refrained from becoming too closely involved in politics. Roosevelt found allies in the local Republican Party and defeated an incumbent Republican state assemblyman tied to the political machine of Senator Roscoe Conkling closely. After his election victory, Roosevelt decided to drop out of law school later, saying, quote, I intended to be one of the governing class. Unquote. I hope that New York accent was good. I think from a couple audio samples I heard of Teddy's voice, that was pretty good. That was close. All right. <laughs> I'll work into <laughs> it. Um, while at Harvard, Roosevelt began a systematic study of the role played by the United States Navy. Anchors away, my boy. In the War of 1812, assisted by two uncles, he scrutinized original source materials and official U.S. Navy records, ultimately publishing the Naval War of 1812 and 1882. As a as a history dad, as this is a history dad series uh, between Rad Dad 2023 and Danger Zone here, I love that he's a history guy. <clears throat> The book contained drawings of individual and combined ship maneuvers, charts depicting the differences in iron, throw weights, 
of cannon shot between rival forces and analysis of the differences and similarities between British and American leadership down to the ship-to-ship level. Upon release, the Naval War of 1812 was praised for its scholarship and style, and it remains a standard study of the war, which is fucking rad, dude. See, the problem is is that it, the day that we put out a book, I'm just going to have, like, every other sentence is from me and you is just going to be F-bombs. <clears throat> yeah. That's something you got to work on. You got to work on that if you're going to write a book. My my wife gets on my case, man. I swear too much. I mean... And, you know, we got, we got a young kid, and we're always around other young kids, and Danielle's always smacking me, going, you're swearing, you're swearing. And it's like... Fuck for me is like a comma or like an um, like everybody says um. Totally. Yeah, no, I I completely get it, dude. Like, <laughs> I it, it it's hard to break. I mean, I guess if we could go back to like eighteen or sorry nineteenth century like swearing and just be like bully off or huzzah, talk like Teddy. Yeah. Maybe we could we could save ourselves some some good graces with the. Uh, Opposite sex, aka the wifey poos and such. Um, but anyway, I really love that he was a history guy, and then he wrote the wrote all these great pieces. I mean, obviously at the time, it, much like most classic authors, he didn't make a lot of money off of what he did, but he did it for the love of it, and that's you know why I do podcasting too personally. I mean, not to equate myself to Teddy Roosevelt, but I get the idea of why he did it. So, with the publication of The Influence of Sea Power Upon History in 1890, Navy Captain Alfred Thayer Mahan was hailed as the world's outstanding naval theorist by the leaders of Europe immediately. Roosevelt paid very close attention to Mahan's emphasis that only a nation within with the world's most powerful fleet could dominate the world's oceans, exert its diplomacy to the fullest, and defend its own borders. He incorporated Mahan's ideas into his views on naval strategy for the remainder of his career. It's kind of like learning from British sea power from the Revolution, a or, if you really want to study it, Napoleon's efforts against the Brits in the uh, Napoleonic Wars. So, I get what he's saying. So, well, man, it's time for us to talk about Alice. Alice Hathaway Lee. There's always a first love. The one that gets in there. (laughs) The one that when you see him, you just... I know. You're all out there. You who have loved truly from your heart and souls. And you know heartbreak too, so we'll get there. But in 1880, Roosevelt married socialite Alice Hathaway Lee. She was a just beautiful woman. And she showed up to the party in pink gown and she just radiated now one of the side tangent note sidebars to this is that she was also 17 at the time which is kind of a oops but it remember this is 1880 
The man's still forward thinking on some things, but every single dude that was there had a boner going at the parties that these, I mean, she was sought after. And um, he saw her and he was like, all these other girls, they're great, but she's my goddess. He saw her and he's like, gotta have it. Gotta, gotta know her. So, as I said, in 1880, after a pretty long courtship, he was worried because her parents were like, who is this loud-ass, toothy bastard? <laughs> this Harvard know-it-all. Uh, but they, they eventually did. They married. Their daughter, Alice Lee Roosevelt, was born on February 12th, 1884. And <clears throat> this is where... Um, see, I want to pad this more. I want to add more depth to this, but I really do think anyone out there who's curious should read the book, The Old Lion, or there's a ton of books about Teddy Roosevelt. But the, the, the long and short of it is she was the love of his life. She asked him to marry their daughter, Alice. And two days after she was born, she died. Um... Some undiagnosed kidney failure that the pregnancy masked. So, like, she just didn't see it. She's like, fuck, I'm pregnant and this hurts. I don't know. Maybe she was just not meant to have babies. Who knows? Um, Roosevelt wrote a large X uh, on the day of basically the day that she died in his diary. He was just so grief stricken. I mean, that's heartbreak, man. And anybody else who's out there who's felt it, you know it, it hurts. It hurts like a motherfucker. I would say some families and things, deaths and stuff like that, but heartbreak, that'll almost, it probably kills some people. Um, the new mother died, as I said, but also his mother, Martha, uh, was sick as well and in his diary Roosevelt like I said put that X on the page on that day said quote the light has gone out of my life his mother Martha had died of typhoid fever 11 hours earlier that same day at 3 a.m. so bam bam that's like yeah that's a lot to go through in one day man yeah wife dies his mother dies and his dad died before that and now he's got a brand new daughter so what is he gonna do go to the go to North Dakota (laughs) 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 he does he's like I'm out I'm fuck this I'm out he literally said fuck this I'm out I'm going to North North Dakota I'm I'm fucking I'm going to hang out with my boys. We're going to shoot bison. We're going to chase around fucking weird birds. We're, we're fucking, we're hanging out. We're doing the thing. The thing to add, though, before he before he did leave for, for the Dakotas, he did finish out his term as a New York State Assemblyman. So he, uh, he did finish out that term, and then he left. So I guess he had to finish a little bit of work first. 
but still. I, that's, that's tough, man. You just have a daughter and then leave. True. Hardly spoke to folks so, him, didn't have too much to say. Basically, you mentioned his state assemblyman times. I think he he just got so overdone with politics combined with all that insane amount of loss. Both his parents and the first love of his life. Um, Well, during the... um, Oh, I wanted to mention, too. With numerous presidential hopefuls in the election of 1884, Roosevelt supported Senator George F. Edmonds of Vermont, a colorless reformer. The state GOP preferred the incumbent president, New York City's Chester Arthur, known for passing the President Pendleton Civil Service Reform Act. Roosevelt fought for and succeeded in influencing the Manhattan delegates at the state convention in Utica. He then took control of the state convention, bargaining throughout the night and outmaneuvering the supporters of Arthur and James G. Blaine. Consequently, he gained a national reputation as a key politician in the state. So, he did attend the 1884 GOP National Convention in Chicago and gave a speech, convincing delegates to nominate African-American John R. Lynch, an Edmonds supporter, to be the temporary chair. So, um... He had some influence in politics before he left. Uh, Roosevelt first visited the Dakota Territory in 1883 to hunt bison. Exhilarated by the Western lifestyle and with the cattle business booming in the territory, Roosevelt invested 14000 upon first payment, which was 439000 in 2022, in hopes of becoming a prosperous cattle rancher. For the next several years, he shuttled between his home in New York and his ranch in the Dakotas. Following the 1884 United States presidential election, Roosevelt built a ranch named Elkhorn, which was 35 miles north of the boomtown of Medora, North Dakota. Roosevelt learned to ride western style, rope, and hunt on the banks of the Little Missouri. Which is fucking cool. He knows how to lawyer. He knows how to be a fucking shithead politician. <coughs> he knows about birds, and now he's hunting with the cowboys. And he said a lot of good things about cowboys. He said their work ethic's amazing, and their word is their bond. It's law. You don't fucking lie to a cowboy, or they shoot you dead, or they hang you high, buckaroo. And he did a like, and this this whole era, like, I don't know, maybe like future presidents out there, if you're listening, go somewhere in America that doesn't see fucking celebrity president types, and just like live a life before you decide to enter office or do something fucking cool. You know, ride an alligator, or I don't know, go on a go on a trip where you ride all the roller coasters in America and rate them. I don't know, do something, do something with your life, expand, folks. All I'm trying to say is like, don't just live a one-page life, live a novel. Expand, right? Right. Go to North Dakota and shoot a bison. 
Fuck yeah. You're the funny thing is, before you go on, the funny, the funny thing is about when he showed up, right? I'm sure you came across this in your research, but like, so right, he's this uh, basically an aristocrat from New York City, Harvard educated, you know, comes from money. He's got plenty of it. Goes out there, you know, to be in the West frontier, you know, the cowboys, the primitive life. And he like buys these, you know, like these cowboy suits and get ups with all the tassels. And he's, uh, you know, people are looking at him like, you know, uh, in Back to the Future 3, when Marty goes <laughs> back to like 1885 and he's got like the fucking goofy Green ass. box. <laughs> yeah, right. So this is basically what Teddy looked like to these guys out there in 1884. It's just a total goober, and he's got glasses, and like nobody had glasses. He can't ride a horse. He can't shoot a six gun. Oh no! I mean, this guy, a- this guy walks into a saloon, and they're just like, "Hey, Forrest, <laughs> we ain't seen uh, much thought- of uh, seen much of you around these parts." <laughs> Just like spit and fucking, you know. It, I mean, it, it is literally what Adam's saying. It is Back to the Future Three, or it's just like, and but but, and I'll say this: there's a great image of him online in his supposed like the his outlaw cowboy uniform, but it was taken in a New York studio, like as a New York studio, like in a studio photo. Like, literally, like a fucking uh, <laughs> Sears picture or something like that. And, like, his mom, or not his mom, I'm sorry, his sisters were, like, laughing at him the whole time. Like, you fucking, like Adam said, you goober. If Danger Zone calls you a goober, you're a goober. But that doesn't make you a bad president. You're still a great president because you went out there and did it. So. During his time in the Dakotas, he befriended quite a few people. He got a lot of those authentic cowboys came around to him. In fact, there's this great story where he walks into one saloon and there's this just like this small little town. And there's this dude who is Ryan on conspiracy therapy drunk, maybe like H.H. Holmes episode, the latter half. And he's rubbing his belly up against the bar. He is just. He's seeing 17 of, of Teddy, but when he walks in, he's like, Hey, Flores! You got the drinks for all of us. Like, he's basically telling Teddy as he walks in in his Sears portrait fucking cowboy uniform with glasses, because that was, that was the number one insult. They called him Four Eyes. And to his credit, he kept his he kept his gentlemanly demeanor. He would say, "Sir, my name is Theodore," and they'd be like, "Oh, uh, sorry." Oh, you know, like they nobody's even on his level. But this guy sized up to him in this in this instance, and Teddy said one thing. Basically, somewhere in the the range of, sir? And then fucking decked him. <laughs> and in fact, and it's true, he knocked this dude out. Because people didn't, people took his 
his stature to be this like gentle gentleman of the city but he was still strong i mean he overcame a lot of his ailments through exertion beat the dude up and the bartender was so happy with him he was like drinks on me dinner on me can have some of our fucking cheese broccoli soup in the back and some bread and whatever and that's true but that's that also so shows you his character like he's he knew who the who the person in the room was the threat and he went straight for it and took care of it and and it's the same thing that are that is going to come up when he leads his troops in battle but this was a really important time because he ends up befriending a lot of people um Initially, they were not that impressed with him, but he earned the respect of them. However, he identified with the herdsman of history, a man he said possesses few of the emasculated milk and water moralities admired by the pseudo philanthropist. But he does not, pos- or, but he does possess to a very high degree the stern, manly qualities that are invaluable to a nation. Interesting. So. He reoriented in his worldview, like he would write back home, he would think about his daughter Alice, and it was hard, because if there's one thing that Teddy did wrong, specifically, it was probably ignoring tragedy and burying it, if I had to say, from from what I can tell. Like he, like literally, his daughter Alice is named after his first love and he's like what the fuck why the hell did we name her Alice like it's just a constant reminder like he instead liked to call her baby Lee which was after his dead wife um so Roosevelt successfully led efforts to re- to organize ranchers there to address the problems of o- overgrazing and other shared concerns, which is shows you his kind of keen nature and understanding the landscape and, you know, just fundamentally growing and learning from the new environments. Um, so he felt compelled to promote... Con- conservation and was able to form the Boone and Crockett Club, whose primary goal was the conservation of large game animals and their habitats. In 1886, Roosevelt served as a deputy sheriff in Billings County, North Dakota. During this time, he and two ranch hands hunted down three boat thieves, and that's true. The Uniquely severe U.S. winter of 1886 to 1887 wiped out his herd of cattle and those of his competitors and over half of his $80,000 investment. Wow. He ended his ranching life and returned to New York where he escaped the damaging label of an ineffectual intellectual. Now, I... I didn't really mention he also would do hunting trips to Maine and he had befriended two guys uh, one fella in his 20s who would take him who was in charge of a logging operation and he 
he really became close with them. I sent you the info on him, on, on the the one guy t- the today who lived to be in his 80s. I can't remember what, what that guy's name, but I know he it was him and his cousin who would help him out. What was that? I think it was William Seward. William Seward. Yes. I think it was. Um, or something. But he, uh, yeah, he originally made some up in Maine. And then um, Teddy, uh, I guess, entices him to move out to the Badlands. Right. And he comes out there. Right. They, they mm. end up being like lifelong friends. And, um, and during one of the parts... Uh, when one of his autobiographers was in, was basically interviewing him on his life in the Badlands, he wanted to make sure that his name and his uh, I think it's his cousin Dow, who was attached to their operation, uh, he had died, and he felt a sense of grief because these were like fundamentally men who shaped him. And you don't get uh, Lieutenant Colonel. Roosevelt without the Badlands and the hunting exercises and his just incredible Wild West adventure times. <laughs> and, sorry, also Seward knew about what was going on with Edith because he was still super popular in politics at the time, so much so that his name drew attention in the paper. And there was a rumor because... Um, as I mentioned, his sister's laughing at him while he was getting his uh, Sears Portrait Studio picture of him in his Dakota's outfit garb. They were laughing. There was also a childhood friend named Edith Kermit Caro who was laughing as well, who slowly and surely under... The span underneath the span of two years past the death of his first wife, they began somewhat of a courtship. Now, at the time, that was pretty taboo, um, especially for somebody who was a minor po- political celebrity at the time. He, his sister, really pleaded with him to keep that out of. Basically, I mean, again, they're rich socialites of the time. There's just, it's just drama, you know? The second anybody is like, Oh, I think I'll wear a hat on me ass. They're like, Oh, fuck! Put it! Print it! She showed her toes! Print it! I mean, it, they, they have nothing better to do but drama. But anyways, yes, Edith enters the picture, and I, I for one, I am okay with this... I love this story because she was like literally part of the group of friends. Like if you, if you're making the biopic, you have to show Edith in the background being like teehee with like a little ribbon in her hair. She's like, I'm gonna play General, or I'm gonna play, yeah, I'm gonna play General Stonewall. Ooh, I'm, I'm Robert E. Lee. I don't know what they played at the fucking playground in the fucking. Civil War times, but I'm just imagining in the background, she's just sitting there like googly-eyeing at Teddy, and I'm just imagining him as just Winnie the Pooh as a little kid, but he's like Winnie the Pooh with asthma. (laughs) Winnie the Pooh with asthma? 
Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, Bob. We thought he must be crazy. I'm sorry. I can't strike try. I, oh. I, well, I mean, it, it's Chris been a minute. Robin's running out of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> when is the police on the ground? Yeah. I mean, I get it. So, Edith, Edith, <clears throat> Theodore, they started a courtship. So, and as of the times, it was in the paper. So, some of the people that he knew that he was in company with, like Seward and Dow and um, all of that, they, they got word. I also sent you something, too, if you have the chance to look it up about one of his interactions in the Dakotas was with a French cattle production guy who was a real piece of shit. But um, I think it was like the Marquis de Mori, something like that. He ran into, at some point, he there was like an issue where he was going to try to buy Teddy's land and, and the most gentlemanly doctor telling you you have a std way said go fuck yourself and uh somehow was able to get out of it um yeah they were basically the guy wanted to duel teddy right is that that what you're talking about i think he might have yeah because he asked him if he he asked him if he had a if he'd ever dueled and you said I'd uh, something, uh, he, no, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, no, he asked Teddy <sighs> if, uh, if he was his enemy. And, you know, obviously this is just correspondence through law, uh, letter. And, uh, Teddy wrote him back, uh, something to the effect of like, I, uh, don't wish to be your enemy or something. Or, or I, the, uh, I don't know. I can't remember. But then he was like, but if I, need to defend myself I'll for anything I have said or done then so be it and the guy kind of just like dropped it that's amazing dude, I guess the guy was like, go ahead go ahead so no I guess I guess the guy was like a gunslinger or something well and he would have Teddy would have gotten killed immediately he because he couldn't see well that, that was <laughs> he, the thing dude, he wasn't a bad shooter. He wasn't the best shooter, but he he still. I mean, we'll get to it. He did eventually kill somebody, and this is leading up into him basically getting into his civil service commission. And then we're don't worry, folks. We're gonna squeeze it in before he becomes president. The Spanish American War. War. What is it good for? Um. So yeah, I played a little country music for us while we we delved into the Dakotas, but I think now we got to get to some military music as we enter war. Well, I think uh, before we move off the Dakotas, I think it's worth mentioning that um, another guy, his name was A.P. Packard. Mm-hmm. Um, he had started a magazine out there uh, called um, uh, The Cowboys of the Badlands or something, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And so he, uh, Teddy hung out at the, at the place where they printed the magazine quite often. And they talked about, um, politics and they talked about, um, you know, just like 
social issues of the day and stuff like that. And uh, A.T. Packard apparently was the first person to ever predict Teddy Roosevelt would be president. And uh, Teddy's response to that was, well, if I ever have the chance, I'll try to be a good one. Mm. So, yeah, you're right. You're he, right. I remember reading. I Yeah. I remember something about <clears> that. There was a like a, a dialogue specifically where it was like, I think good men or honest men need to be in leadership positions. And Teddy was like, maybe you're right. Like maybe he was just very well spoken and well read, and he, he, you know, he was impressed by Teddy. So, um, I think it was probably the. I mean, maybe he got some some of that when he was an assemblyman in New York uh, for those three years. Maybe you know, getting involved with federal politics and all the way up the chain to you know the White House. But uh, but yeah, I think that that. That was the first guy that said, you're going to be president one day. And a president, he, a good president, he would be eventually. But anyway, there's a lot to go before then. Go ahead. We're getting into it. We're getting into it. We're in the second half now. We're, get, uh, we're getting into the second half of the first part. Here we go. Upon Roosevelt's return to New York City in 1886, Republican leaders quickly approached him about running for mayor of New York City in the 1886 election. Roosevelt accepted the nomination despite having little hope of winning the race against United Labor Party candidate Henry George and Democratic candidate Abram Hewitt. Roosevelt campaigned hard for the position, but Hewitt won with 41% of the votes, taking the votes of many Republicans who feared George's radical policy. George was held to 31%, and Roosevelt took third place with 27%. So keep that in mind, folks. He lost his boxing thing. In fact, I think the first bison he shot at when he went to the Dakotas, Dakotas, he missed and he lost his first election when re-entering public life. We can take L's, folks. It's part of life. Just saying. I scoped myself. I can't even talk about shooting things properly. Adam knows the story. I do. <sighs> Ten, what, nine. What's that? You can see your scar on your forehead. <laughs> what did you get, Nine. Eight or nine stitches there. Uh, Got a couple. Uh, scoping yourself, ladies and gentlemen, is when you take a high-powered rifle or gun and use the scope as your own head helmet when you shoot. You use your forehead as a backstop for the uh, scope, yeah. I did that on Adam's property. True story. He's one of my best friends, and uh, I wouldn't have had it happen anywhere else. Continuing on. Oh, that was funny. Roosevelt, fearing that his political career might never recover, Roosevelt turned his attention to writing The Winning of the West, a historical work tracking the westward movement of Americans. The book was a great success for Roosevelt, earning favorable reviews and selling numerous copies. So even though his earlier works didn't sell so great, he just kept doing it. That's how you do it, folks. You keep doing it, you keep doing it, and doing it well. When he went into civil service, 
After Benjamin Harrison unexpectedly defeated Blaine for the presidential nomination at the 1888 Republican National Convention, Roosevelt gave stump speeches in the Midwest in support of Harrison on the insistence of Henry Cabot Lodge. President Harrison appointed Roosevelt to the United States Civil Service Commission, where he served until 1895. While many of his predecessors had approached the office as a sincere, uh, I'm sorry, sinecure, Roosevelt vigorously fought the spoilsmen and demanded enforcement of civil service laws. The Sun then described Roosevelt as, quote, irrepressible, belligerent, and enthusiastic, which just sounds like somebody in the late 19th century, basically. That's how you got women. You just fucking screamed. Yeah. And then they were just... You know, uh do you know anything? So when he was at the Civil Service Commission, do you know anything? The uh, the spoil system, what basically he was trying to get rid of. No, so the uh, I don't know if you, if you're familiar with what the spoil system is, but basically, just to kind of give a background, it, so Teddy was considered a reformist, right? Mm-hmm. He's always tackling corruption. He's always fighting for the little guy. He's always you know making sure the game is a little bit more fair for everybody. And so the spoil system, historically, they kind of attribute it to, like, Andrew Jackson's presidency. Um, Populist president, future episode. (laughs) Going to have a lot of future episodes here. Um, But, yeah, so it's more or less been been around since, you know, the beginning. But um, essentially what it is, when the presidents would get elected... Uh, they would basically bring in all their people to fill the civil service position, you know, like um, their family members, you know, nepotism and stuff like that. And their buddies, you know, cronyism, everything like that, they would just bring in. And so every four years or every, whenever new president comes in, everybody who works for the federal government goes out and then they got a whole nother batch of new people in there. And so, um, his his mission at the Civil Service Commission was basically to put an end to that spoil system, as it was called, and implement a system where um, basically people who were qualified for the job got it vice just because they were the president's brother-in-law or some shit, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we still see it, obviously, up until, you know, more so in the last presidency. There was, you know, people in the White House that probably weren't qualified to be and nor should have been anywhere near the White House. But, you know, that's just you can appoint people as your advisor and, you know, then they got a, a, a push, push job. But, right, 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 right. Well, I mean, even. But, yeah, so you try to get rid of all that, basically. But, for, and that happens. That's happened in a lot of presidencies <laughs> going back. Uh, yeah. So. Let's talk about New York City Police Commissioner era. In 1894, a group of reformed Republicans approached Roosevelt about running for mayor of New York again. He declined, mostly due to his wife's resistance to being removed from the Washington social set. Soon after he declined, he realized that he had missed an opportunity to reinvigorate a dormant political career. He retreated to the Dakotas for a time, his wife, Edith, regretted her role in this decision and vowed that there would be no repeat of it. William 
Lafayette Strong, a reform-minded Republican, won the 1894 mayoral election and offered Roosevelt a position on the board of the New York City Police Commissioners. Roosevelt became president of the Board of Commissioners and radically reformed the police force. Roosevelt implemented regular inspections of firearms and annual physical exams, appointed recruits based on their physical and mental qualifications rather than political affiliation, established meritus service medals, and closed corrupt police hostilities. So he really cracked down, and he wasn't a favorite of the, the boys in blue per se he was a he was for everyone you know but he also wanted people to have pride in what the job they were doing and for the right reasons so at the time it was probably one of those things that had some growing pains but specifically in one of the autobiography-esque uh retellings i was listening to he was pretty proud of what he did at the time, even though he did it for very little compensation. Yeah, so I was thinking about this real quick. Go ahead. Uh, when I, I was thinking about this when I was watching some documentaries and, and reading through like his time as police commissioner, because right, he's the top of the food chain um, at this point for New York City Police Department, right? And so he would regularly um, like walk the beat at night and like go and check on, you know, the the police officers that were patrolling the street, the streets, and were out at the bars and whatnot. And he would always find like all these, you know, policemen on duty, and they're wasted in the alley, you know, getting a blowjob from the, you know, lady from the brothel. You know, it's just like they he would find them, you know, just total dereliction of duty, right? And so I was thinking about it. Like, remember, like, so you and I obviously were <clears throat> military police and sat on post. So basically, I equated it to imagine if we're sitting on like some post in Greece or Iceland or wherever, and you know, the CO, not like your watch commander, not like your chief, like the CO, the top, the top of the food chain is just like coming around and like catching us, you know, watching fucking movies on post you know like <laughs> shit we used to do sleeping in the fucking patrol unit and you know just just the top brass showing up and we're all in the middle of like a game of dice and we're gambling and smoking dope or smoking ciggies and drinking vodka and just like what's up are you the yeah, new, are, mean, you, the, are you the new guy are you here to relieve us oh shit <laughs> Yeah, and then you get caught red-handed by the CO. Of course, you're going to get in trouble. So, yeah, total reform of the police department. Yeah, I just uh, it's just it's funny to me, you know, well, thinking about it. And, you need you. It's, you're, there's a lot of people out there probably thinking like, ah, oh, that would fucking blow like to have that happen. But like for a job, a civil service job like uh, police, like. You, you want good people in those positions, you know? And some of the, some, I'm not going to say some, I'm going to say pretty much all of that work, like a teacher or a, a doc, uh, people in the medical field, can be a very thankless job, and I get that. Believe me, I get that. And my fucking hat goes off to you. My heart goes out to all those people that work in those types of jobs. 
Like you guys really have to put in some serious hours for little to no thanks. And I get it, but it's so much better to have good people than it is to have complete and total waste of times, you know, corrupt police, which I mean, there's a, a hundred stories, thousands of stories, but he went in, cleaned it up. And uh, Roosevelt made a habit of walking the beat, like I said, late at night, early in the morning to make sure that they were on duty. He made a concerted effort to uniformly enforce New York's Sunday closing law. In this, he ran up against boss Tom Platt as well as Tammany Hall. He was notified that the police commission was being legislated out of existence. His crackdowns led to protests and demonstrations. Invited to one large demonstration, not only did he surprisingly accept, but he was also delighted in the insults, caricatures, and lampoons directed at him and earned some goodwill. Roosevelt chose to defer rather than split with his party. As governor of New York State, he would later sign an act replacing the police commission with a single police commissioner. Now, as Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1896 presidential election, Roosevelt backed Speaker of the House Thomas Brackett Reed for the Republican nomination, but William McKinley won the nomination and defeated William Jennings Bryan in the general election. Roosevelt strongly opposed Bryan's free silver platform, viewing many of Bryan's followers as dangerous fanatics. He gave scores of campaign speeches for McKinley, urged by Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. President McKinley appointed Roosevelt as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in 1897. This is so crazy to think about how fast things are about to happen. Secretary of the Navy John D. Long was more concerned about formalities than function, was in poor health, and left many major decisions to Roosevelt. Influenced by Alfred Thayer Mahan, Roosevelt called for a buildup in the country's naval strength, particularly the construction of battleships. Roosevelt also began pressing his national security views regarding the Pacific and the Caribbean on McKinley and was particularly adamant that Spain be ejected from Cuba. He explained his priorities to one of the Navy planners in late 1897, saying, I regret war with Spain from two viewpoints. First, the advisability on the grounds both of humanity and self-interest of interfering on behalf of the Cubans, and of taking one more step towards the complete freeing of America from European dominion. Second, the benefit done our people by giving them something to think of which is not material gain, and especially the benefit done our military forces by trying both the Navy and Army in actual practice. Uh, so he had a <laughs> on February 15, 1898 
assistant whatever to the department of the navy and the guy that was like the head of the department of the navy was like i'm going home i'm taking the day off please please oh god do not do anything crazy and roosevelt (laughs) is the last person you want to say have an easy day okay you're in charge no he sent out like immediately he's just like just filling out paperwork he's like okay uh we need to send a boat to we need supplies we need supplies we need supplies we need to send this boat we need to go to here we need to check on the cubans we need to check on the spanish we need to check on the japanese we need to do the like it was crazy like he's just like always thinking about the world at the time like i can't imagine there was a brand new art uh, like a like a new newspaper that he didn't read every word of or scanning constantly like if there was like 24-hour news during that time he would have had it going constantly um but we know remember remember or what is it remember the main i think is what they said in 1898 remember the main to hell with spain yeah that's right i almost said the other one Uh, anyway After finally giving up hope of a peaceful solution, McKinley asked Congress to declare war upon Spain, beginning in the Spanish-American War. Now, I kind of mentioned this to you, but there was this thing called the Monroe... Uh, what was it called again? Doctrine? The Monroe Doctrine? Yeah, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, which came up... Do you, do you <clears throat> want to break... Can you? Do you have that pulled up? Can you break that down? Uh, I, I don't have it pulled up. It's just, um, yeah, I got Monroe Doctrine is pretty, pretty well known in the political world, especially if you have a couple degrees in this stuff. Um, but yeah, essentially Monroe, Monroe Doctrine was, uh, um, you know, James Monroe was the fifth president of the United States. Um, he served in the 1820s, I believe. Um, so it was well before this time. But yeah, so the, the Monroe Doctrine was basically, um, a separation of the old and the new world. He wanted, uh, you know, Europe to deal with European affairs and the new world and the, you know, new, new American colonies to deal with their stuff. And so basically non-interference, which essentially up until this time, the United States was still a very isolationist country. Um, so the fact Roosevelt had his eyes all over the globe, you know, and wanted to place the Navy in, in strategic areas, such as the Philippines or down in Latin America, you know, it was a lot of people didn't see it that way. A lot of people were just like, let's just let the world deal with their problems and we'll deal with our own. And so, um, going into the Spanish American war, um, I think, uh, Roosevelt used, the Monroe Doctrine to kind of um, defend uh, this side of the world from European influence, from Spanish influence, right? So um, I guess there's a little spin on the Monroe Doctrine with, with Roosevelt. And we'll get more into that, but I just wanted you to <clears throat> kind of do a little prelude to that for basically before we get to episode two and we kind of explain a little bit more behind that. But this war in Cuba was intense, and not only did 
most of the people that were working at the Department of the Navy bet against all his huff and puff because Teddy full on was like, if there is a war, I am going to serve. And come hell or high water, I will be there leading the charge. And not only was he part of the volunteer army that went, he initially was asked by McKinley to be a colonel, but instead asked that he be made lieutenant colonel under command of Colonel Wood at the time. And um, said basically to McKinley, even if you wouldn't allow it, I'd go there as a private. It's my duty as an American. I kind of love it. Kind of love it. So you got to have respect for it, though. I mean, you're looking at the guy. He's the assistant secretary of the Navy. You know, he's he's got a posh, you know, gig. You know, he's working his way up the political ladder. You know, he's, he's rubbing shoulders with the president and all the higher up. And this guy's like, nah, I'm giving that all up. I'm leaving my family. So he's got he's got four kids, or I think he's got all six of his kids by now. Yeah. Right? Yeah. He, he's he's he got Alice from, from he's got Alice from his previous marriage and he's got five and I I'm pretty sure Quincy was born at this point too. Right. So he's, he's got this great he's got this great job and he's got this big beautiful family and he's just like, Yeah, no, nah, I'm I'm going to war. And it 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 ties back to how you started talking about his father not participating in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um and Teddy just felt like he he had to prove that part of his I guess manhood or to to have his name be associated with some heroics with some bravery, you know. And so who who's gonna who's gonna give all that up and go to war? Um very few people would probably do that. I mean so it's it's great deal of respect for him to make a decision like that and you know, go off and see actual combat, not just go and be down there, be in the theater, but he effectively actual he effectively could have went and died and he didn't. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's it's astonishing what he does do in in relatively short amount of time. I mean, later on it would be called the Fifty Days War, but uh, the Spanish American War, the war in Cuba. Basically, what happens is in late a- April eighteen ninety eight, uh, with the beginning of the Spanish American War, Roosevelt resigned from his post as Assistant Secretary of the Navy along with Army Colonel Leonard Wood. He formed the first U.S. Volunteer Cavalry Cal- Cavalry Regiment. His wife and many of his friends begged Roosevelt to remain in his post in Washington, but Roosevelt was determined to see battle. When the newspapers reported the formation of the new regiment, Roosevelt and Wood were flooded with applications, almost like 20,000 letters. Like, there were just bundles of letters. And, like, at one point, he just picked one up randomly and read it, and it's like, I would uh, please like to serve with uh, Rose- Roosevelt, I can shoot, signed Cletus. Like, it was... All over the map. There were people, like... And not only was that, like... Did that spread like wildfire, just like when any news of Roosevelt happened, like, with his uh, courtship with Edith, they immediately dubbed the 
the press referred to these uh, this regiment as Rough Riders, and Teddy wasn't a fan, just like the Teddy of the Teddy Bear. Like, you didn't call Teddy Teddy to his face. You called him Theodore T.R. I mean, you could call him Silly Mustache Four Eyes if you wanted. I still think he liked that more than Teddy. Or Rough Riders, when it came to his regiment, he didn't like the idea of them being ruffians. He wanted them to be, you know, honorable soldiers. Um, but, you know, hey, word of mouth will get you places. And in this case, he's got his Roosevelt and Wood, the two uh, lieutenant colonel and colonel, were flooded with applications, referred to the press as Rough Riders. The regiment was one of many temporary units active only for the duration of the war. The regiment trained for several weeks in San Antonio, Texas. In his autobiography, Roosevelt wrote that his prior experience with the New York National Guard had been invaluable and that it enabled him to immediately begin teaching his men basic soldiering skills. The Rough Riders used some standard issue gear in some of their own design. And initially, I think some of the politicians were like, you guys got to wear these um, these uh, old wool suits from, you know, like the, like it was stupid. Another one of these things where the higher brass have no idea what the men, the boots on the ground are doing or that the fact that they're going to be fighting in Cuba. Now, here's a side tangent. I lived in Cuba for at least seven months on a deployment. In my life, I have never been to an area as hot as Cuba. The moment I got off the airplane when we landed there, I was a sponge a soaked sponge being squeezed dry. I sweat from places I didn't even know sweat. I cannot imagine having to wear full uniform in the Cuban heat, carrying the packs they must have, and the guns. So reading through this part of it, I was like, Jesus Christ! That is... That is gotta be unbearable so keep that in mind rad dead says it's hot as it's fucking hot as hell so uh going back to the revolutionary war episode just wearing all the wool the wool on top of wool in the exactly you know, in those south carolina battles and, and and fighting south the humidity and the heat i just yeah and you're just like dripping, dripping. You, you are dripping you thought your balls were sweating before. Your balls have done melted off. You might as well just be a fucking puddle. Um, so they used some standard edition gear. They they changed some things around. Diversity did characterize. There were black members of the regiments. They did get to the top of San Juan Hill with our dear Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, there were Ivy Leaguers, professional and amateur athletes, upscale gentlemen, cowboys, frontiersmen, Native Americans, hunters, miners, prospectors, former soldiers, tradesmen, and sheriffs in the Rough Riders. That's how Rough Riders roll. So, they were part of the Cal Cal Cavalry Division commanded by former Confederate General Joseph Wheeler, who, from all... Reports that I heard he was like, he could have, he looked like he just rolled out of the Civil War, but was like a pretty, pretty upscale dude. 
which itself, uh, so was, it was Confederate General Joseph Wheeler of the Cavalry Division commanded this group, which itself was one of three divisions in the V Corps under Major General William Rufus Schaefer. Roosevelt and his men landed in Daiquiri, Cuba. Now, this is sad. I was reading this story, and this was the part where I cringed. So, I think we mentioned this in the Grand Rapids History episode, but basically when they landed, like, there was no way to get out to get ashore. Like, they had, there was no, like, real port access, and the waves were so bad that they, a lot of them who didn't know how to swim, like, they lost two guys just trying to jump in the water and, like, wade up, like, they got as close as they could with the boats. And then like, they even tried to like crane the horses in and like one of Roosevelt's horses drowned just getting onto the land. Like it was a, it was a shit show just getting on onto Cuba. So again, regulation sucks, but I, and, and all that and safety can be boring, but safety sexy folks. If you want to live, Back it up, do the speed limit, put your blinker on. We have these things here because there are histories of people fucking dying and falling off boats and bumping heads and eyeballs falling out. Anyway, they get on land. Under Roosevelt's leadership, um... Basically because the boys wouldn't answer to Wood. I mean, they lo- th- there was a, a chain of command, but, like, it was really the Teddy show. And he knew that because everywhere they went, like, even in training at San Antonio, there were crowds watching. They're like, yeah, Teddy, Teddy's number one. Leave the Texas. You know, he, I just thought of this. He's, you know, because at this point, he was a celebrity. You know, he was, he was a politician slash like everything he he, uh he was very well known and he was celebrity so i'm I'm trying to think of like examples of modern day right and so i think it'd probably be similar to um was it prince was it prince harry or prince william um that went to afghanistan the one that married the the american lady Meghan markle it was Uh, that prince harry I think it's Prince Harry. I I he's the one who wrote the book. Think- he he's the one that wrote the book that was like unsaid that I'm a prince. <laughs> I didn't read it, <laughs> but no, I'm thinking like because there was a lot of media. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not it's not that bad to be a prince, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just I what I saw. To, no, I, I wouldn't want to be a prince. That seems like it'd be awful. Um. But no, I, I, I remember there was a lot of media attention when when he was in Afghanistan uh, with his unit or whatever, um, mm-hmm. and he did a whole deployment over there. But anyway, that's what I'm thinking that's kind of what it must have been like, with the like, media and the spectators and all the attention that Teddy got when he was just like trying to trying to go to war and like had all these people watching him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It it was. A sh- I mean, it was a media frenzy. They were. There was even like a reporter that was there with him. Roosevelt and his men landed in Daiquiri, Cuba, on June twenty third, eighteen ninety eight, and marched to Sibony, 
Wheeler sent parts of the 1st and 10th regular cavalry on the lower road northwest and sent the Rough Riders on the parallel road running along a ridge up from the beach. To throw off his infantry rival, Wheeler left one regiment of his cavalry division, the 9th, at Sibony, so that he could claim that his move north was only a limited reconnaissance if things went wrong. Generals, doing a little cover your ace. I also, you know... There was a lot, even in this, where they were talking about the the planning and the chain of commands kind of bullshit back and forth. Now, I understand, you know, the Rough Riders are about a thousand, and you've got other divisions, cavalries, whatever. You need those men to listen to one commander or lieutenant or whoever's in charge of of a battalion you need those those chains of command and those things to function properly or else they're literally lost and confused especially when things go into war full-on chaos um but like when we did the revolutionary war we talked specifically about the british generals who had miscommunicated and that had led to probably one of the bigger downfalls for the Brits during the Revolutionary War. And when I read about the Spanish-American War, even though it was a relatively quick in and out, um, it did like immediately make me think, like, fuck, guys, you could have fucked this up by being, like, you know, egotistical about promotions and looking good at the time. I can't say... <coughs> Sorry, I can't say that Roosevelt was perfect. I mean, he did get reprimanded from Colonel Wood for drinking with, or I don't, I'm not sure if he was, I think he was kind of a teetotaler. I don't think he was a big drinker, but um, basically he got reprimanded for socializing with the troops too much because he was kind of the celebrity that he was. Um, and he did try to distance himself from that ultimately, but... Of all the people that were there, of all the people that fought the Spanish-American War, I can definitely say that Teddy was the one that was most there with the final goal of achieving the goals of the mission, of, you know, silencing the enemy and doing the job that had been set forth. And I appreciate that about him. And this really leads up to... Um, this final battle here. So Roosevelt was promoted to colonel and took command of the regiment when Wood was put in command of the brigade. The Rough Riders had a short minor skirmish known as the Battle of Las Guillemas. They fought their way through Spanish resistance and together with the regulars forced the Spaniards to abandon their position. Under Roosevelt's leadership, the Rough Riders became famous for the charge up Kettle Hill. On July 1, 1898, while supporting the regulars, Roosevelt had the only horse and rode back and forth between the rifle pits and the forefront of the advance up Kettle Hill, an advance that urged that he urged despite the absence of any orders from his superiors. So again, there was one guy that's like, I'm waiting for my colonel, or I'm waiting for this guy, or I'm fucking, you know, like everybody's sitting around doing nothing, and there's guns going off and machine guns going off. You know, shrapnel flip flopping around, and 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 it, full disclosure, Roosevelt did get hurt during this, but he was like literally so 
focused on get the fuck into that area where they're causing us all this grief and shut these fuckers down. And maybe when he just said that, one guy heard him and followed him, and then he would be like, fuck shit, turn his horse around and go back. Come on, guys. And they're like, five guys hear him, and they come with him. And then he comes back. He's like, why the why the bully aren't all of you following me? And they're like, we didn't hear you the first time. It's like chaos. Finally, they all go up the hill. And, you know, he did lose his horse, too. Like, this wasn't a... This wasn't a fun time. Like, he, he got separated. He had to run a lot. He's fucking, you know, he's in his second half of his 30s, late 30s. He's just panting and running and fucking, guys, get up the fucking hill. Bully this. F- go here. Do this. And they're just like, it's chaos here, man. I'm sweating my fucking dick piss off. I don't know what's going on, man. I miss Susie back home. She used to make me cookies and fucking blow me in the back of my fucking carriage. I don't want to be here anymore, man. So, but they got up the hill. They all showed, <laughs> they all showed up at the top, and they were just like, we're victory, we're fucking victorious. <laughs> And that was, I mean, he regarded that time in the service as such a fucking important time in his life. Um, In August, Roosevelt and other officers demanded that the soldiers be returned home. Roosevelt always recalled the Battle of Kettle Hill or part of the San Juan Heights as the, quote, great day of my life and my crowded hour. In 2000, Roosevelt... In 2001, Roosevelt was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions. He had been nominated during the war by army officials, annoyed at his grabbing. The headlines had blocked it. Like I said, a lot of egos during this time. And a lot of these guys were like ex-Civil War guys. They're like, what? This isn't about slavery? I I don't know what we're doing here. I mean... (laughs) the south wants its own rights this was never about slavery we don't want government interference that's what this is about we'll get to the civil war it'll be like a 17 part series um so he he finally got his just reward you know like he he was definitely definitely worthy of the accolades he received. And after this, I mean, those men, they gave him one of the greatest gifts he ever got, which is a straight up weapon that they all chipped in their little fucking army wages in on. And he kept it and he cherished it. Like he, and he shook every man who survived the battle, who came home, who had to quarantine. Cause they had big issues with like malaria. Um, they had to quarantine for a week and before he could even see his family and they got him that trophy and he took the weapon, the rifle, and he was just like, I'm going to shake every single one of you dudes hands, look you in the eye and say, thank you. And I will remember your faces. Like, that's cool. And you know how it is. I mean, even being stationed in fucking bumfuck Iceland, we were all like, when we left Iceland, we're like I will remember your face, brother. Let's listen to Stained. Let's drive and... Do you stub your toe, Bill? Or are you crying? Um, 
<laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Bill. We love you, man. After returning to civilian life, Roosevelt preferred to be known as Colonel Roosevelt or the Colonel. Though Teddy remained much more popular with the public, even though Roosevelt openly despised the moniker, men working closely with Roosevelt customarily called him Colonel or Theodore. Governor of New York, after leaving Cuba in August 1898, the Rough Riders were transported to camp at Montauk Point, Long Island, where Roosevelt and his men were briefly quarantined. Yeah. Before you move on, so I was thinking about this too. This goes back to remember when we were talking about disease mm-hmm. and and how that will cause way more death and destruction than than actual like getting shot or blown up did in the revolution. Yeah, right. It's just, the, if you look at the casualty figures from the Spanish American War, it was the same thing. Like, yeah, people died in combat and they died, you know, in combat operations and whatnot, but far more. Far more people died of disease, both on the American side and the Spanish side, and obviously, you know, the Cuban uh, side. Um, but far more people died of disease in the Spanish-American War than died in actual combat. And it's just like this was at the turn of the century. So, you know, they didn't solve. Going back to the very beginning of the episode, there was no medicine. Everybody, you get sick, you're, you're fucked. You get malaria, you get typhoid fever, you get any of these damn... It was awful. Well, so they, you're sweating your balls off. Right. And there's... there's and you're eating... You're eating fucking... You're eating, like, rotted boot. meat. You're and eating your boot. <laughs> you're eating your boot. It's true. But it, it, there's There was so much of that. Like, <laughs> And actually, I'm glad you mentioned that, because at one point when they were in Cuba, they got a rations order for the officers of it was like 1200 cans of baked beans or something like insane and or just beans and like they had literally been eating like moldy salted pork or bacon bits and like some sort of weird bread thing you know like those mres but like bad like 1898 bad and they had broken it down so much that it had just become like like they're eating clay they can't hardly taste the bacon anymore their mouths are dry because it's fucking hot so he went to meet with this supply guy and he's like only an officer can take these baked beans these aren't for enlisted men and he said okay well our um our officers um would like to request all of the baked beans right now or beans Sorry, I keep saying baked beans. Because I can't imagine imagine eating a whole can of beans like a hobo. But okay. He gets these 1,200... I love beans, dude. I'll eat a whole can of beans cold. <laughs> you fucking hobo. Uh, so he he did find a way to, to acquire all said beans. And he said, told the uh, supply officer to just take the cost out of his check for... Um, for the cost of the beans, and he gave them all to his men. It's like, fuck this. These guys don't get that many pleasantries. The least I can do is give them some fucking French cut beans. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sucks, man. It must have, dude, it, it must have just been god awful to be in war back well, the, then. I mean, it sucks any time, but I mean, it just like 
10 times, 100 times worse back before there was like latrines. You know. Yeah. There are no porta potties. You know, your fucking ball sweat smells like your pit smell. You can't tell the difference. You guys all smell like a horse's ass. Meanwhile, you just ordered 1,200 cans of fucking baked beans in Cuban humidity. No wonder the Spaniards surrendered. You just fucking flatulated them straight back to... No wonder. Oh, fucking A. But yeah, no, that was it. It was done. They quarantined. They said you guys had way too many beans. <laughs> Fucked up in Cuba. No, and it was very, like, it was a sweet, super honorable thing. Like, they finished it off. He went his way. And he, um, he, Roosevelt defeated a, uh, so there was an incumbent Republican direct uh, governor, Frank S. Black. Roosevelt agreed to become the nominee and try not to make war with the Republican establishment office and once in office. Roosevelt defeated Black in the Republican caucus by a vote of 753 to 218. He stormed it when he came back. I mean, nobody's not going to vote for the guy. I mean, even even there's probably secret Democrats who are like, God damn, I kind of love this guy. I mean, it's like, am I going to vote for a for a guy with a weird name, or am I going to vote for Teddy Ruxpin? I, I'm going to vote for Teddy Ruxpin. I, I can't imagine with his celebrity, it would, it, I mean, again, uh, there's other things we can point to in other aspects of history, but he the wins. Funny thing is he, just gets, he just gets thrown into these positions. Like, it's weird how he, you know, like, the police commissioner job, like, he's just like, what? You know, I know. He comes back. He's been gone for so long, and then he comes back. He gets like a civil service job. Then he's just now he's you know that was in Washington, and then he goes back to New York, and they're like, oh, you're going to be the police commissioner. Then he goes off, goes to war, comes back. They're like, oh, you're governor now. Like right. you're going to be you're going to run for governor. Like he just kept he just kept getting thrown in these crazy. Uh, I, I don't know. If we want to call them predicaments, but just like these crazy scenarios where it's well, just like. It's almost as like, but, but, but everybody around him seems to know it too. Like if you listen to people who knew him or people who were acquainted to him, his siblings, they, they all were like, yeah, he's going to be the fucking general. He's going to be the president. He's going to be, he's, he's Teddy. He's gonna, there's no way he's not going to get it done and do it. Whatever, whatever it is, he's going to win. Um, people had just had an immense faith in the man. And I think a lot of it has to deal with his principles and his, his the way he spoke and the things he said. I mean, there's a million quotes and we'll get to them, believe me. And I'll, I, one of my favorite quotes I've ever read, ever, I'll read in episode two. So stay tuned for that. We got to get through this. We're already two hours in, homie. Good gravy! What a cast. All right. Yeah. Well, we're almost we're almost at the yeah. Vice we, president. So he's he's we good. Can wrap it up. Yeah. As governor, <laughs> Roosevelt learned much about ongoing economic issues and political techniques that later provided valuable in his presidency. He studied the problems of trusts, monopolies, labor relations, and conservation. 
Chessman argues that Roosevelt's program rested firmly upon the concept of the square deal by a neutral state. The rules for the square deal were honesty in public affairs, an equitable sharing of privilege and responsibility, and subordination of party and local concerns to the interests of the state at large. By holding twice-daily press conferences, which was an innovation at the time, Roosevelt remained connected with his middle-class political base. Roosevelt successfully pushed the Ford Franchise Tax Bill, which taxed public franchises granted by the state and controlled by corporations, declaring that's a, quote, corporation which derives its powers from the state should pay to the state a just percentage of its earnings as a return for the privileges it enjoys so he had this idea or not even idea he knew we're just gonna we're we're not talking politically here he just he knows henry t ford and his choo-choo automobiles vrooming around at top speed of 20 miles an hour does the corporations needed to pay some sort of because they're making too much money they're if that doesn't make any sense to you i'm sorry but they do like there's a certain amount of wealth you get to that it's like okay maybe pay for some of the roads that your cars are driving on a little a little everybody pays equally as a as a member of this um, population corporations you get you know these incredible growth opportunities and, and insane amounts of wealth as your growth accumulates give back a little bit um, and I appreciate that he would have these twice daily conferences because well, he go ahead he pissed so many people he, he pissed so many people off when he you know was in positions of authority like when he was governor because you know all this reformist shit people were, weren't used to it you know you mentioned ford um you know rockefeller you know jp morgan all these guys in today's dollars they were the you know the 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 elon musks and the, and yeah, the mark zuckerbergs and bezos the, zuckerberg yeah they were like astronomically wealthy compared to you know <clears throat> the people who worked for him i mean essentially the same as it is now just completely blown up numbers but teddy when he was you know in positions of authority he his whole focus was to root out corruption make the game fair for everybody you know and you mentioned the the tax bill um the franchise tax bill um, he pushed a ton of progressive policies when he was governor of New York. Um, and a lot of that goes back to his time as assemblyman when he worked on some bills back then that were reforming the, essentially the labor market. Um, it was just people worked in squalor. You know, there was no child labor laws. They had, uh, you know, they had, they, they just worked 16 hour days. They got paid pennies. And, you know, he, he just pushed all this stuff when he was, um, when he was governor and for people like Ford and Rockefeller and Morgan, it pissed them all off. Well, right now that, it's like, that's another thing. Pocket. 
that's another thing to connect to his dad too. As I mentioned, he was the <clears throat> the wealthy philanthropist who invited his wealthy socialite friends together, and then he would pull the disenfranchised off the streets and just have them walk into a room and have to meet face to face the people that they were essentially oppressing, you know, mm-hmm. having those hard face to face and those conversations. Roosevelt was all, all about that connecting with the common man and that, mm-hmm. and, and not even man people. Like I said, he was equal rights for everyone. He really believed in the suffragettes. He was a proud, proud, uh, man when it came to the women in his life like he spoke of them lovingly and glowingly and uh to him it seemed like we we live in a beautiful vast incredibly mysterious and incredible world and there's so many things to explore and to see and to learn. And it, to, I think most of all, for, especially for Teddy, there was just this, like, when it came to wealth, you, you know, one of the stories that really hit me was when, when they were talking about after the Spanish-American War was over and they were all in Cuba and um, after the Spaniards had fleed, they were left much of the shops that they had opened. So like they, they were, they had gained all this, like these resources kind of similar to like what Napoleon did on his conquests where they would just take whatever was left at the time. But in this instance, there was just basically like free food, free supplies, maybe at these Spanish shops that were open on Cuban soil. And even with what was left from the Spaniards, they still had quite a, uh, I'm sorry, they didn't have quite enough to fill all the bellies of the servicemen that were there. So rather than, basically rather than lose it and just pack it all up, they split it amongst each other evenly with what they had. You know what I mean? So it's like everybody gets a taste, everybody gets like a, you know, a Cuban, <laughs> a Cuban sandwich, a panini or whatever it was at the time. And gets a couple of fucking taquitos and they're happy or whatever. Like, they they spread it out. And I'm not talking about, like, hey, I'm a socialist. This is the way I think of the things. I think what it is is it's unfair for there to be such a monopoly on the resources of the world. It doesn't make sense for one person to be the king it doesn't make sense for one person to swallow up an entire, like, pers- like say, third of the economic, like, growth of a, a country. Um, and I think Teddy saw a lot of disparity between the, the low-income disenfranchised populace and the higher elites. And like you said, there, there were things in there that he was striving for. And it was something he learned from his father. It's something that he continued to really hit on and in, is part of one of the lasting legacies of the progressives that were formed during that time. You know, so. Yeah. 
Uh, the New York state government affected many interests and the power to make appointments to policy making positions was a key role for the governor. Platt insisted that he be consulted on major appointments. Roosevelt appeared to comply, but then made his own decisions. So Roosevelt was like, yeah, I'm a Republican governor. I said I would play by the rules, but fuck you, I'm Teddy. <laughs> I do what I want. Um... Historians marveled that Roosevelt managed to appoint so many first-rate men with Platt's approval. He even enlisted Platt's help in securing reforms, such as in the spring of 1899, when Platt pressured state senators to vote for a civil service bill that the Secretary of the Civil Service Reform Association called superior to any civil service statute here, heretofore secured in America. G. Wallace Chessman argues that as governor, Roosevelt developed the principles that shaped his presidency, especially insistence upon the public responsibility of large corporations. Publicity is a first remedy for trust, regulation of railroad rates, med mediation of the conflict of capital and labor, conservation of natural resources, and protection of the less fortunate members of society. Roosevelt sought to position himself against the excesses of large corporations on the one hand and rad radically... Uh, okay, so against the excesses of large corporations on the one hand and radical movements on the other. So, as the chief executive of the most populous state in the Union, Roosevelt was widely considered a potential future presidential candidate, and supporters such as William Allen White encouraged him to run for president. Roosevelt had no interest in challenging McKinley for the Republican nomination in eight. Or, I'm sorry, in 1900, and was denied his preferred post of Secretary of War. As his term progressed, Roosevelt pondered a 1904 presidential run, but was uncertain about whether he should seek re-election as governor in 1900. And last but not least, his vice presidency. In November 1899, Vice President Garrett Hobart died of heart failure, leaving an open slot for the 1900 Republican national ticket. Though Henry Cabot Lodge and others urged him to run for vice president in 1900, Roosevelt was reluctant to take the powerless position and issued a public statement saying that he would not accept the nomination. Additionally, Roosevelt was informed by President McKinley and campaign manager Mark Hanna that he was not being considered for the role of vice president due to his actions prior to the Spanish-American War. Eager to be rid of Roosevelt, Platt nonetheless began a newspaper campaign in favor of Roosevelt's nomination for the vice presidency. Roosevelt attended the 1900 Republican National Convention as a state delegate and stuck a struck a bargain with Platt. Roosevelt would accept the nomination for vice president if the convention offered it, it to him, but would otherwise serve another term as governor. Platt asked Ro Pennsylvania party boss Matthew Quay to lead the campaign for Roosevelt's nomination, and Quay outmaneuvered Hannah at the convention to put Roosevelt on the ticket. Roosevelt won the nomination unanimously. Roosevelt's vice presidential campaigning proved highly energetic and an equal match for Democratic presidential nominee William Jennings Bryan's famous barnstorming style of campaigning. In a whirlwind campaign that displayed his energy to the public, Roosevelt made 480 stops in 23 states. He denounced the radicalism of Bryan, contrasting it with the heroism of the soldiers and sailors who fought and won the war against Spain. Bryan had strongly supported the war itself, um, but he denounced the annexation of the Philippines as imperialism, which would spoil America's innocence. Roosevelt 
countered that it was best for the Filipinos to have stability and the Americans to have a proud place in the world with a nation basking in peace and prosperity. The voters gave McKinley an even larger victory than that which he had achieved in 1896. After the campaign, Roosevelt took office as vice president in March 1901. The office of vice president was a powerless since uh, it was basically a power, powerless position. It did not suit Roosevelt's aggressive temperament. Roosevelt's six months as vice president were uneventful and boring for a man of action. He had no power. He presided over the Senate for a mere four days before it adjourned. On September 2nd, 1901, Roosevelt's first publicized, uh, first publicized in uh, a porphism that thrilled his supporters. Quote, Speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. And on that note, he did go far. And you'll have to hear about that in episode two, motherfuckers. Anyway, that's your episode one. What do you got? What did you just play? I played a rock riff. (laughs) I couldn't hear it through my. Oh, it's a. You'll hear it on the podcast, but yeah, that's two hours and almost twenty minutes of part one. We got a lot. Oh boy, we got a lot covered, man. We talked about his Dakotans, his Miami, Maine, and voyages. I mean, I guess Miami. If it's if you're going to Florida, you got it, and you're on your way to Cuba, you got to go through Florida. So hey. The man went a lot of places, did a lot of things before he was 42 and things started to happen. But that's part one of Theodore Roosevelt. Part two will probably be just as long and just as detail heavy. We did it, man. Danger zone. You know, and we, we, we really left out quite a bit in between here and there. I mean, we covered a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, big stuff, but. There's well, little things. I, I we, followed we, the notes and I completely forgot to discuss like the National Guard shit. Like I it the thing about I, it is dude, there's so much, it's so hard to keep everything like there's no time limit here, but you know, like it's so much to talk about, it's hard to squeeze it into a couple hours, you know. I and this is go down this is hole. this is just two history loving dads on a podcast talking about this stuff, it shows you that like a movie they're, they're going to have to compress the shit out of some stuff. Cause oh, yeah. there's just so much, there's so much. And that's the first half of this two part series we're doing on this guy. I mean, I don't know. I'm feeling good. We did, we did our due diligence Watch, I've, I read a whole book for this. You guys should definitely check it out. The Old Lion by Jeff Sahara on Audible. You use a credit if you want to do it that way, or you could do it. The hardcover I saw was 20 bucks on Amazon. And if you're interested, uh, join our Discord. Send us an e- email. Send us a message on Instagram, anywhere, YouTube, Zanzizi Podcast at gmail.com. With that, uh, I guess I will say, uh, throw it over to you. Do you have anything you want to tell the world before we end this episode, my dude? Uh, be kind, rewind. All right. You heard it there, folks. Danger Zone said it, so it must be true. 
We love you guys. We'll see you in one week. This episode will come out Monday of next week. So one week from this Monday, you will get part two with Rad Dad and Danger Zone.